Good morning, Grace Church. Uh, for those of you, who, if you are following in the church bulletin, uh, there's been a slight change of program, so we're not in Matthew this morning. We're taking uh, a one-week break from that. Uh, Pastor Nathan will be back with us to continue Matthew next week. Uh, but I'm sure you've all been uh, tuned into the news over the last couple of days. I'm sure everyone at this stage around the world have all heard about the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you know, the, the news and internet, they're all inundated now with, with news about her and her life and tributes and, and highlights of the things that she's done in her life. Uh, but as you've been reading these uh, news headlines and, and you know, watching the news, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times people don't like to use the word death or to, to say that she's died. They, they, we like to use other words. We substitute it with other words instead. We say things like, um, you know, she has passed away or she's deceased, um, or, you know, not necessarily about the Queen, but, you know, in talking about death, people might say, oh, they're no longer with us anymore. They've gone to meet their maker. Uh, they're in a better place now. They're resting in peace. And so we have all these uh, euphemisms, other, other words uh, to substitute for the word death. If you're more Australian, you, you may use phrases like, they've kicked the bucket, or they've, uh, they're pushing up daisies, or they've gone belly up. And uh, the one that I've heard most recently, uh, they've gone into the fertilizer business. <laughs> right, it seems we have this, uh, we're uncomfortable about talking about death, and so we need to find some other way of talking about it. We need to find some other words, and maybe even make light of it a little bit, and be, be a little bit humorous. Uh, it's almost like we can't talk about the subject. Uh, and you know, many of us here are Chinese, and as you know, in the, in the Chinese culture, we don't like the number four because the number four in Chinese sounds like the word for death. And so we avoid the number four. We don't have tables with number four on them. We don't have buildings with level four on them uh, because we're so afraid of death that even the mention of the word itself seems to bring some fear into us, doesn't it? Well, the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about death. Rather, it, it actually makes us confront the reality uh, of death by seeing death for what it actually is. But more than that, the Bible uh, gives us a way to not only accept death, but to even face it with joy. And so keep your Bibles open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now this is a part of the Bible that maybe not many people have read, um, but it's a fascinating book actually. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is, throughout the book, he's trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. Now, that is, a, that is a huge question to try and get your head around. What is the meaning of life? What are we here for? Uh, we're not going to have time to go through the whole book today. Um, but the author is, is trying to figure out this question, not from a religious perspective, actually, at least for, for, for most of the book. He's deliberately not looking at life from a religious perspective, but the opposite. He's looking at life under the sun. Now, that's a particular term that he uses in the book, which is really important for you to remember. It's kind of his way of saying, look, if we put the Bible down, if we, if we assume there's no God, and we just look out into the world, and we're trying to figure out what the world is about, what life is about, what can we make sense of life? What can we figure out about, about life if there is no God, if there's no Bible, if it, life was just what we see with our eyes, what we experience with our lives, what is life all about? Now, that is life under the sun. And so with that in mind, come with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and see what the writers have to say. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked. 
the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Like the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, look, when you look at into all the billions of people in the world, he says there is one thing, one thing that every person has in common, and he says it's this, that we all die. Right? Every religion can agree on this. We all die. Death is, the, is a disease with a 100% mortality rate. There is no cure, there is no vaccine, and we're all infected with this disease of death. Now, you don't need to be a genius to, to figure that out, do you? Uh, we, all, we all know that to be true. But what the writer of, of Ecclesiastes finds particularly frustrating about death is that death makes us all equals. See, look at the, the categories of people that he mentions in verse 2. He says that the righteous and the wicked, there's a the good and the bad, there's a the clean and the unclean, there are those who offer sacrifices, that is, the, the religious, and the, those who don't offer sacrifices, that is, the non the irreligious. There are the, there are the good and the sinners, and there are those who take oath and those who don't. Now, these are all very deliberate pairs of people he mentioned, because they're all opposites. Right. And normally we would say these people who are opposite, I mean, they're very different from each other. They have nothing in common. They're opposites of each other. They are worlds apart. And yet, he says, in death, these opposites become the same. They become equal. Death reduces everyone to the same level. It's kind of like um, being on a Titanic. I'm sure you've all heard of the Titanic. It was built more than 100 years ago. And at the time, it was the largest ship um, ever built. And the passengers on this, uh, on this uh, ship were split into three categories. You could buy first-class tickets, second-class tickets, and third-class tickets. Right? And the treatment that you received on this ship would vary significantly depending on what class of ticket you had. So those people in the first class, I mean, living on the Titanic was, was like in a grand hotel. You know, they had these big ballrooms and swimming pools and uh, a gym and squash courts and laundry facilities and a fancy French cuisine. In contrast, those in the third class uh, accommodation, they shared rooms uh, with uh, 10 people in the room. Um, they only had two bathrooms for the whole of the third class, which was about 1,000 people, two bathrooms, one for men, one for the women. So you imagine the queues just to go to the toilet. And the second class was kind of somewhere in between there. I'm not sure exactly sure what, what second class was like. But someone described the, this, the differences between the three classes. Uh, they summarized it by the quality of the toilet they use. So in the first class, their, their toilet was made of marble. The second class, the toilet was made of porcelain. And the third class, the toilets were made of iron. Right? So they're very different groups, very different groups of people, very different kinds of treatments. Uh, and the people from the lower class, they were restricted from entering into the upper class uh, levels. Right? You could not go in there. You were banned. But then all of that changed when the Titanic hit an iceberg and it began to sink. All those categories of first class, second class, third class, uh, that didn't matter anymore. Those distinctions between people did not matter anymore. Right? They were replaced with two new categories, whether you were dead or whether you were alive. Right? 
doesn't matter what class of tickets you had, what mattered then was whether you made it out alive or whether you were dead. No, they were the only categories that mattered. See, in life, we, we categorize people in all sorts of ways, don't we? We categorize them you know, according to male or female, whether they're uh, Chinese or Australian, uh, whether they're young or old, whether they're smart or dumb, whether they're good or bad, rich or poor, and, and so on. I mean, we have lots of different ways in which we separate and distinguish people. And depending on the kind of category that you fall into, the way that people treat you might be very different. And yet you'll find at the end of your life, these differences count for nothing. It makes absolutely no difference because you will still die. And that, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that is evil. Now, why, does it, why is he so kind of upset about that? Why, why does he say it's evil? It seems very strong language. Well, he explains in verse 4, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead, dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. He says, once you die, you have nothing. You, you know nothing, and you're remembered by no one. Everything about you is gone. Your love, your hate, your successes, your achievements, your wealth, even the very memory of you will be forgotten eventually. It doesn't matter whether you achieved great things in life. It doesn't matter whether you were an important person. It all counts for nothing, absolutely nothing. Death treats everyone the same, and that is the evil that the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about, that death is the great equalizer. It makes everyone the same. And so that, since that is the case, the writer of Ecclesiastes then reflects upon this and, and gives us three tips on how we should live. If, if this is true, if death is this great equalizer, he says, here are three, three tips on how we should live. Firstly, in verse 7, he says, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with, with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So he says, look, if, if we're going to die anyway, and since how you live makes no difference to how you die, well, then the first tip he gives us is that, well, just, just enjoy it. Just enjoy life while you can. Do whatever you want to do. Go, go eat and drink. Or eat good food, drink wine. It talks about you know, being clothed in white and anointing your head in oil. That, that's kind of our way of saying, um, you know, wear nice clothes, wear brand names. Put on some perfume, smell nice. All right? Enjoy your wife, enjoy your partner, enjoy sex, because this is the only life you've got. So you better enjoy it while you can. Now, if you uh, go to the supermarket and you buy a can of Pepsi Max, I forgot to go grab one for this morning, but if you, if you grab a can of Pepsi Max, you'll see on the, on the side of the can, they've got a slogan under, under Pepsi Max. Uh, nowadays, it kind of says, um, I think, what is it? No sugar, or no, Max Taste, no sugar. Right? That's, that's their slogan to kind of incentivize you to buy their drink because it's healthy, it's no sugar. Right? But I remember back when I was a teenager, 
when Pepsi Max first came out as a, as a new thing. And the slogan was very different back then. The slogan at the time was Pepsi Max, live life to the full, oh, no, no, live life to the max, all right? Live life to the max. And that, that's the attitude that we see here in the writer of Ecclesiastes. He says, look, life is short, so make the most of it. Live life to the max. Go for your life. Do, do whatever you want. Uh, the young people these days don't talk about living life to the max. They say YOLO, uh, which stands for you only live once, right? Since you've only got one life, go, go for it. Go have fun. Go eat good food. Go travel the world. Do what you want. We're here for a good time and not for a long time. And that, honestly, is the approach that many people have, don't, don't they? Now, you, you can actually now tell them that your approach to life actually comes from the Bible. Uh, this, this godless way of living actually comes from what the writer of Ecclesiastes recommends. And it makes sense, right? Like, if you look at life under the sun, right? That is, if you look at life, if there was no God, there's no Bible, there's no, no afterlife or anything like that, if this life is all that there is, then living life to the max is the most logical and most reasonable thing to do. And then he gives a second tip in verse 11. He says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. He says, well, you might want to live life to the max, you might want to enjoy your life, but, but who knows? Who knows what might happen? Who knows whether you'll achieve success or not? Who knows whether you'll uh, achieve your goals or not? It's, it's all kind of random. It's just, just luck. You might get there, you might not. And so that's the second tip. Just, just remember, it's all, it's all based on luck. So you might be strong, or you might be wise, or wealthy, or brilliant, and so on, but, but that's no guarantee of success. It's no guarantee you'll actually enjoy life. So just hope you're lucky. Good luck. And the third tip, uh, he, in verse 12, he says, Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. See, the third tip for life, he says, is this. He says, you don't know how much time you've got. You might be doing the very things you enjoy. You might be lucky and you get to achieve your goals. But who knows, you might only get to enjoy it for, for a little while. See, in the US, just off the coast of the New York State, is a small island called Carlton Island. And back in 1894, a rich man named William uh, Wyckoff, uh, he wanted to build a holiday mansion uh, at this, on this island. And I mean, who, which rich person hasn't dreamed of owning their own island and having their own private residence there to, to enjoy? And so he, he got a famous architect to design his mansion for him. Uh, he paid big money to ship building materials over uh, across the water. Uh, he bought lots of nice furniture for it. And finally, when it was all ready, uh, he, he went to visit his holiday mansion, he spent the night there, and the very next day, he died of a heart attack. Right, completely unexpected. He was enjoying his life, he built his dream house, he was ready to enjoy it. But then his time was up. And so this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says that this life is, is meaningless. This death makes a mockery of all the things that we achieve in life. Do you think you're very successful? You think you're doing well for yourself? You're building a life um, that, you, that you want? Well, think again. There are no winners in this race. We are all losers in the face of death. Now, I know that's kind of depressing, isn't it? 
but that is the, the logical, reasonable conclusion when you look at life under the sun. And in the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer continues in his quest to find something else that might give meaning. Um, and look, spoiler alert, he does find an answer to this question. Uh, but we're not going to have time to explore the rest of the book today. You, you can go, go read that in your own time. But allow me to cheat a little bit today. Uh, you remember that the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's looking at life under the sun and struggling to find an answer. And because in, in, this, in this book of Ecclesiastes, he's deliberately limiting himself to this perspective of life under the sun, like deliberately limiting the scope, pretending there is no God, and trying to make sense of life without God. But what happens if we cheat a bit and we bring God back into the picture? Right? Ecclesiastes is not doing that, but, but what if we cheat a bit and we bring God back in the picture? Right? If God is real, then that means death is not necessarily the end. And that is the message that we find in the rest of the Bible. Right? If you have a Bible there, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, it's a very long chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's nearly 60 verses long. And in it, the Apostle Paul, he spends all that time talking about Jesus' resurrection. And look what he says about life. If the resurrection is not true, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So far, Paul is in agreement with the writer of Ecclesiastes. He says, if there is no resurrection, if death is the end, then let's eat and drink and enjoy life. Do whatever you want while you can. But, but if the resurrection is true, well, it goes on in verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant, ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. See, he's saying if there is a resurrection, then you can't just live life to the max without consequences. The resurrection means that what we do in life matters. Because there is life, then we die, but then we'll be raised to life again and to give account to God for how we have lived. And so he says you can't just go on doing whatever you want if there is, if there is a resurrection. Right? You have to stop being ignorant of God. You've got to put God back in the picture. You've got to stop living life under the sun and come back to Jesus. Now, yes, we still face death, even, even as Christians, but for those of us who follow Jesus, Paul says death has lost its sting. He goes on a few verses later in verse 54. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he says death has a sting. We, we are scared of death. We're fearful of death because, well, because it separates us from all the things that we love and all the people that we love, the things that we hold dear. Uh, we're scared of death because it puts an end to our life's work and achievements. And so to the rest of the world, death is this great enemy. It's this great enemy and the great king of terror. But to Christians, death has lost its sting because Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has overcome death by coming back to life again. And so to us Christians, death has no sting. Death is but a friend, not an enemy. Death is but a friend and the end of terror. Death is but the doorway to our Father's mansion. 
Death is but the end of pain and sorrow and the beginning of endless joy. So Jesus has given us victory over death. Why would we fear death anymore? See, and this is what the writer, this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes, what he could not see. See, if the resurrection is true, then dead or alive are no longer the two categories that matter. But we have two new categories because of Jesus. What really matters now is whether you're with Jesus or against Jesus. They're the only two categories that matters now. Now let me try and sum up what we've looked at this morning. We started this morning thinking about how we, as people, are afraid about death, to even talk about death. But the Bible tells us that we're all going to die one day. No one can escape this reality. We're all going to die. And secondly, if death is the end, then whatever you do, uh, I mean, if death is the end, then do whatever you want. You might get lucky, you might not, you might succeed, you might not, but it doesn't matter. And thirdly, we learned that since death is not the end, since there is a resurrection, we better make sure that we're with Jesus. Now let me ask you then, are you afraid of death? I know we don't like to think about it. It's, it's an awkward topic. It's not something you bring up over lunch or morning tea. But every now and then, we are forced to think about this subject of death, aren't we? Like when a famous person like the Queen dies, we're forced to face reality. Or when you attend a funeral of someone that you love, you're forced to think about death. Or maybe when something like a deadly global pandemic strikes, we're forced to think about death, aren't we? And it's times like these that we are shaken out of the comfort of our life under the sun and we're forced to stare death in the face. And you have to ask yourself, are you afraid? Are you afraid of death? Back in the 18th century, there was a famous pastor, preacher called John Wesley. Uh, Some of you may have heard of him. He founded uh, a Christian denomination called the Methodists. One time, a member of his church was was dying, uh, and uh, the doctor came to you know, see the patient. Uh, and after seeing the patient, uh, the doctor said to John Wesley and his brother Charles, he said to him, most people die for fear of dying, but I've never met with such people as yours. They are, none of them, afraid of death, but calm and patient and resigned to the last. So on a similar occasion, John Wesley said of, of the people in the church, he said, our people die well. Our people die well. See, there are plenty of books that teach us how to live well, but do you know how to die well? Or as another person put it, do you know the art of holy dying? Right now is the time to learn how to die, to die well, while we are alive and well. You can't learn that on your deathbed. Right, the way you learn to die well is to come to Jesus the one who defeated death and rose again. So you don't need to be afraid of death. That death can be not an enemy, but a friend. Now I know it is hard. It's hard to die well, isn't it? Especially when we have so many treasures stored up on earth that the treasures of heaven seem dull and uninspiring. We need to constantly remind ourselves that the things of this earth are but bits of glitter in light of the glories of God. Now, no one likes to think about death. Um, it seems a bit kind of serious and, and somber and strange to talk about it. 
but no one likes to think about it because we all think that, well, death is not going to happen anytime soon for, for me, so we kind of put it off. But that's part of the problem, isn't it? Just as there is nothing more certain than the fact that I will die one day, so there is nothing more uncertain than the time of my death. Right? We don't know when we're going to die. We know we will, and yet we're not prepared to do anything to prepare for it. So we must learn how to die well starting today. I remember hearing one, once um, this story. I can't remember the, who it was. I, I, I can't find the reference, but I remember hearing about a Christian man who was on his deathbed, and his friend comes to visit him, uh, kind of wanting to give some words of comfort and encouragement, but kind of not sure what to say. And so, so the friend asked the dying man, you know, how, how are you feeling? You know, um, and, and the man lying in bed, he kind of says words to this effect. He says, look, knowing that in perhaps a matter of moments, I'll be seeing the face of my saviour. I'm actually a bit excited. I don't know if that sounds strange to your ears. It certainly does sound strange to mine, but I think that's a picture of someone who is dying well. And as your pastor, I hope that if I get the privilege of one day being by your deathbed, I hope that I will hear these same kind of words coming from your lips. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we know that when you created this world, death was not part of the picture. You did not intend uh, to have a creation that was full of death and decay, sin and suffering. But it's because we have turned away from you that we live in a world um, that is full of pain, that is full of sorrow, and one which ends in death. But we thank you that because of your son Jesus, because of his death on the cross, and that he rose again, that we no longer need to fear death, that for those of us who are in Christ, we can have confidence that death has lost its sting, that we no longer need to be scared of it, but that we can uh, even look forward to death. We can face it with joy, knowing that it brings us uh, to your doorstep. And so, Father, we pray that you would help, uh, help us to be people who know how to die well, that we would not shrink in fear, but that we would be strong and courageous because we know that you are with us, that you have conquered death, uh, and that we have an eternity of endless joy to look forward to. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.